to inform you of the current state of affairs, the rising unease over what's now been classified as a global pandemic. We have access to more information than we could possibly want or need. Our social media and news feeds changing by the moment, awakening anxiety in the hearts of many, at a minimum concern, leaving many of us wondering how to process what's happening in the world around us. Where is God in all of this? Why is our world filled with things like global pandemics? Can anything good come from this? As Christians, we believe that the answers to those kinds of questions are found in the scriptures. We have something far better than human speculation. We have divine revelation. We don't have to run to and fro in the never-ending search for truth and hope and meaning. The God of Christianity is a God who speaks, revealing something of his character, nature, and being, revealing something of why this world is what it is, revealing something of where this is all headed. I invite you to open up God's word with me this morning to Romans chapter eight as we explore the topic of the sovereignty of God in the midst of uncertainty. As you turn there, I'm gonna go ahead and pray for our time together this morning. God, you are infinite in power. You are infinite in wisdom. You are infinite in goodness. We are desperate for you more desperate than we even know. We invite you to move in our midst, even in this scattered sense in which we come together this morning. Holy Spirit, would you move in power? We invite you to move mightily this morning in the name of Jesus Christ the Son to the glory of God the Father, amen. I've listed Romans 8 as the go-to passage, not because we're gonna spend the entirety of our time sitting with that particular chapter of the Bible. In fact, we're not even gonna start with that chapter. But it does give us an anchor, a picture of both God's sovereignty and goodness as we journey through other parts of God's word in search of answers. As a caveat, I don't pretend to think that all of our questions are gonna be answered this morning as it pertains to things like divine sovereignty and human responsibility and how the two work together or the problem of evil, how there can be an all good, all powerful God and evil exist in the world as we know it or the more nuanced argument of whether or not God ordains versus permits evil in our world. You'll likely walk away with questions this morning. In fact, I'd be surprised if you didn't. Volumes upon volumes have been written on those various topics, thousands upon thousands of pages, more than we could possibly dive into this morning in the time that we have together. But I would ask you not to let any unresolved questions rob you of grabbing hold of and standing on the bedrock foundation that I am offering you this morning. I once heard a pastor say, when tragedy strikes, we hug we weep with those who weep, we embrace those who are hurting, but we do so knowing that the embrace itself ultimately needs ground underneath it, something to stand on in the midst of the storms of sadness and suffering. That questions will eventually arise, it's inevitable. Questions like the ones that many of us are wrestling with this very morning. C.S. Lewis in his Mere Christianity says, comfort is the one thing you cannot get by looking for it. If you look for truth, you may find comfort in the end. If you look for comfort, you will get neither comfort nor truth, only soft soap and wishful thinking to begin with, and in the end, despair. As a pastor, I really wanna weep with and hug the sheep of this flock well, 
if and when tragedy should strike, and that's not pandemic related so much as a broad blanket statement having to do with suffering and sorrow. And and then on both sides of that tear-filled embrace, I wanna do the best I can to infuse steel in the spine of your soul that you might trust in God's sovereign plan as you rest in his goodness and love. That's what this morning is about, offering us solid ground to stand on, whether it be in preparation for a storm to come or as we stand in the midst of one right now. And so let me attempt to do just that by beginning with these words. You and I are not the unintentional product of time, matter, motion, and chance. The accidental evolving of primordial sludge into the glory of man. You and I are part of a story, a divine, redemptive, historical drama filled with beauty, meaning, and purpose. We live our lives on a rock, mostly molten lava, being flung around a ball of fire in the sky as part of a divine theater with stage lighting that hangs from the cosmos. You and I get to live and breathe the air of the theater of God, you might say, as he tells the story that he intended to tell before anything was made that was made. And the story he's telling is one in which and over which he exercises full control, owning all the rights to the script. His sovereignty is not restricted to those things that we typically regard as good, like the opening of a door that led to the perfect job or the orchestrated events that brought you and your spouse together, though that's true. He's sovereign over all things, including natural disasters, calamities, demons, and even death. He's writing a beautiful story of redemption for his glory and the pen never has nor ever will leave his hand. Supreme in authority, supreme in power, supreme in wisdom, sovereignly seated on the throne of heaven so that nothing is outside of his plan. Ephesians chapter one, verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Isaiah chapter 46, verses nine and 10. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. God is in control. We don't live in a universe spinning into complete chaos. We live in a universe that's in submission to a God who's cool, calm, and collected. He's not in a panic. He's not blindsided by some alteration of the script unbeknownst to him. And that includes anything that would fall into the category of a global pandemic. Let me just offer a few examples of what I mean, a few ways in which the pen is in God's hand. His sovereignty not subservient to anyone or anything, including the devil of hell himself. Number one, God is sovereign over political leaders and world rulers. Daniel chapter two, verses 20 and 21. Daniel answered and said, blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. Here it is. He removes kings and sets up kings. Daniel chapter four, verse 17. The most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Proverbs chapter 21, verse one. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Even the most powerful and mighty of leaders is is only so because of God. And that includes the wicked ones like Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel's day. Nebuchadnezzar was only able to besiege Jerusalem because God gave him the victory. 
Nebuchadnezzar was only able to understand his dream because God revealed its meaning through Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar failed to singe a single hair on the head of Daniel's friends because God delivered them through the fire and the flame. God's not sweating it from his throne in the heavenlies over who's in power in the midst of this global pandemic. God is the one seated on the throne. His redemptive historical narrative will not be derailed by human governments or rulers. He's the capital K king, you could say, and all human authority and power is given by him. No matter how powerful a king is, every king rules under the sovereignty and authority of the one true king. Secondly, God is sovereign over plants and animals, and that includes the one, ones from which human beings contract new strains of virus, including those that turn into global pandemics. It's God who plagued Egypt with creatures big and small, causing frogs to rise up in mass out of rivers, canals, and pools, Exodus chapter eight, verse five, sending an east wind so strong that locusts were sovereignly driven to cover the face of the land, Exodus chapter 10, verse 13. Or one of my personal favorites, perhaps the most wondrous in all of scripture, Jonah chapter one, verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish. The word appoint in the original Hebrew means to ordain or to assign. It's God saying, you go there. Amidst the roughly 320 million cubic miles of open ocean, God ordained a specific creature to be right where Jonah's ship was, and he did so right as Jonah was being hurled from that very ship. And it's not just the great creatures of the deep. He also appoints worms, Jonah chapter four, the lowest creatures on the food chain. When an animal carrying around a virus manages to somehow transmit that virus to a human who then transmits that virus to so many other humans that it turns into a global pandemic, it's not outside the governance of the God who appoints the great fish of the sea. God knows exactly where the virus started and he knows exactly where it's going next. He has the power to restrain it if he so chooses. And at this point, he hasn't. And since he always does what is wise and just and good, he has wise and just and good purposes in this too. Number three, God is sovereign over sickness. Look no further than the gospel accounts where we see the many healings of Jesus, a sign of the inbreaking of God's kingdom. In the book of Job, we're told that Satan was only allowed to strike Job's body with sickness because God gave him permission. Job chapter two, verse six. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. We don't live in a world in which God is resigned to simply reacting to Satan's strategic moves. The prowling devil of hell is nothing more than a pawn in the hands of a sovereign God. Job himself, a man struck with far worse sufferings than many of us will ever know, he goes even further than many of us would be comfortable going in, in terms of the sovereignty of God. When Job's wife despaired, begging him to curse God and die, Job looked beyond the subordinate cause of Satan to the sovereign hand of God, saying this, Job chapter two, verse 10, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? Followed by the words, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Meaning that he wasn't speaking in error. 
He wasn't speaking words of blasphemy. The book of Job itself closes in the last chapter with these words, Job chapter 42, verse 11. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. To be crystal clear, God is not evil, nor does he commit sin or evil. You should mourn evil because it's the antithesis of our good God. Satan is evil and full of hate, not the God of the Bible. But Satan is not sovereign over sickness. Even in sickness and suffering, the pen has never been taken out of God's hand, including sickness on the level of a global pandemic. A.W. Pink, in his book, The Sovereignty of God, says this, speaking of Job, he bowed to the sovereign will of Jehovah he traced his afflictions back to their first cause. He looked behind the Sabians who had stolen his cattle and beyond the winds that had destroyed his children and saw the hand of God. But not only did Job recognize God's sovereignty, he rejoiced in it too. To the words the Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away, he added, blessed be the name of the Lord. Number four, God is sovereign over life and death. The Bible's clear in teaching that God not only knits us together in our mother's womb, he decrees when our last breath will be too. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 39. Now see that I, even I am he, and there is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive, I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 6, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. James chapter 4, verses 13 through 15, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. That's why David could say that every one of his days were written in God's holy book before one of them had come to pass. God is sovereign over our living and God is sovereign in our dying. Our lives are ultimately in his hands. Charles Spurgeon once said, I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. That every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit as well as the sun in the heavens. That the chaff from the hand of the winnower is steered as the stars in their courses. The creeping of an aphid over the rosebud is as much fixed as the march of the devastating pestilence. The fall of leaves from a poplar is as fully ordained as the tumbling of an avalanche. In response to those who challenged Spurgeon, calling him a fatalist and a stoic, he said this, what is fate? Fate is this, whatever is must be. But there's a difference between that and providence. Providence says whatever God ordains must be. But the wisdom of God never ordains anything, he says, without a purpose. Everything in this world is working for some great end. Fate does not say that. There is all the difference between fate and providence that there is between a man with good eyes and a blind man. 
The question that we should be asking ourselves this morning is this. How is this sovereign God over all things relating to me in the midst of this rising uncertainty? If you're not a Christian, I pray that this unique opportunity would not be lost on you. Life is brief. Something is going to take us out. We will someday stand before God and we'll give account to him for our very lives, just like our first parents in the garden. Maybe the questions cross your mind. You, you said earlier, we're part of a story filled with beauty, meaning, and purpose. So how, how do you explain the existence of these things, the things that make this world sad? Where do they come from? How did they get here? Paul helps to give an answer to that question in Romans chapter eight, verse 20, where he says this, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Who, who is that? Who, who did the subjecting? Paul's talking about the fall of man here, similar to the way he talks in Romans chapter five, verses 12 through 21. God's story begins with goodness and beauty, no groaning or corruption or futility. Coming out of Genesis three, sin, floods, sickness, and wars. Meaning that the one who did the subjecting, coming back to Romans 8.20, is either Adam, Satan, or God. And we can rule out two of those possibilities on the basis of how Romans 8.20 ends with the words, in hope. Adam didn't subject the world to futility in hope. That wasn't Adam's plan. Satan surely did not subject the world to futility in hope. His goal was to bring the whole thing crashing down. It was God. God judicially sentenced the world, subjecting it to futility in response to sin, which only makes sense if you have a high view of God's holiness and justice, along with a feeling sense of the gravity of your own sinfulness. Pain, suffering, bondage, corruption, disease and decay, it's not an overreaction on God's part. That's how serious sin is. In the words of one pastor and scholar, this all has some judicial just sense about it. For, for those of us who would look at suffering in the world and wonder whether God cares, wondering why he doesn't intervene, he intervenes every time we breathe. He intervenes in every sunrise and sunset. Every good gift we have is God caring. Every good gift that we have is God intervening, none of which we deserve. As Ray Ortland said in last year's Acts 29 Global Gathering, when casually asked how things were going in life and ministry, he said, I should be in hell right now. I'm doing pretty swell. Like on the basis of our, our own merit, each and every one of us deserves death a thousand times over. Like our first parents in the garden, our sin condemns us before God. And the sentence that awaits the guilty in the courtroom of God is the sentence of death. And we're not just talking physical death, but spiritual death. The, the umbilical cord connecting us to God relationally has been severed. Meaning that if we die a physical death in a state of spiritual death, we will experience eternal death. Sentenced to eternal conscious punishment in hell, separated from God forever, as Jesus himself taught in the Gospels. So that this coronavirus-filled world is the best that some will ever know. 
And the reality is trying to move the needle through good works doesn't work. We talk about this all the time as a church. Self-justification is an absolutely hopeless endeavor. James chapter two, verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Romans chapter three, verse 21, uh, verse 20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. On the basis of our own merits, we stand condemned before a holy sovereign God, which is what makes the greatest suffering the world has ever known, good news. The suffering of Jesus Christ on behalf of sinners like you and me. The one sovereign over all suffering, the Bible tells us, entered into our suffering world. He lived the perfect sinless life that none of us could live. He died the death that we deserve to die, bearing something far worse than the coronavirus. First Peter chapter two, verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Our sins were put upon Jesus and he was punished in our place. But he didn't stay there in the grave. He rose from the grave, delivering a crushing death blow to Satan, sin, sickness, suffering, and death that we might be brought into right standing with the sovereign God of redemptive history. So that if you're not a Christian, it's very simple. I invite you this morning to put your faith and trust in Jesus. He's a sure foundation in the midst of uncertainty. And if you are a Christian, coming back to the question, how is this sovereign God over all things relating to you in the midst of this rising uncertainty? Well, for one, suffering is not an if, but rather a when, even for the Christian. Coming back to Romans chapter eight, verse 23 says, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. You will never hear me say in the midst of a tear-filled embrace, the only thing standing between you and health is unbelief. Just a few verses prior in Romans 8, verses 16 and 17, Paul says, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided, here it is, that we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. We will face hardships in life. We will experience something of the sufferings and sorrows of this world. But here's the good news for the Christian. Your suffering is never punitive. It's only ever purifying. Jesus became your curse, Christian. If you lost everything in your 401k tomorrow and then contracted a sickness that led to your death, it would not be because God hates you. It would not be because you're cursed. There is no wrath for God's children. The wrath of God was absorbed by Jesus in your place on your behalf. God delights over you because of Christ. You're his beloved child because of Christ. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, you have been established among God's new covenant people. And what that means is that God is sovereignly governing all things for your good, regardless of how things may appear from within the story. One of the most famous verses in all the Bible, Romans chapter eight, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, all things 
both the pleasurable and the painful. Everything that we encounter in this world, including global pandemics and the market volatility that they cause, all things work together for the good of those who are in Christ Jesus. The present good of deepening our faith, deepening our dependence upon God, deepening our trust in God. The present good of increased intimacy with God as we cling to him in the midst of uncertain times. The present good of prying our grip off of things that cannot ultimately give us what we need or long for most that we might more deeply treasure Jesus Christ. The present good of conforming us to the image of the Son, the forming of Christ-like humility and holiness in us. The, the present good of increasing our compassion so that we can minister to others facing similar uncertainties in life. And then there's the, the good that is to come, which we've been talking about for weeks now in our walk through 2 Corinthians. The weight of glory beyond all comparison. Creation regained, renewed, redeemed, made the eternal playground, you might say, of the children of God. No more pain, no more sickness, no more global pandemics, no more market volatility, no more death, safe in the arms of our sovereign God and Father, eternal dwelling with him, eternal satisfaction in him. This coronavirus-filled world is the best that some will ever know. But for the Christian, this coronavirus-filled world is the worst we'll ever have it. So I would say this to you this morning. Don't panic. Our news and social media feeds will continue to change by the minute, as will the volatility of the market, but not God. He will be the very same God by day's end that he is right this very moment. Cast your anxieties on him, the one who's sovereignly scripting this story to its consummate end. Walk in wisdom, showing the world that prudence and trust are not enemies, but rather friends for the people of God. Pray knowing that it's no compromise to the sovereignty of God to fall on our faces and cry out to him. Pray that God would curb the spread of corruption to use that Romans 8 language. Pray for the recovery of the sick. Pray that many would come to faith in these uncertain times. Pray that God would use this to cause those of us in Christ to more deeply treasure him. Trusting him with the outcome of those prayers, knowing that he's infinite in wisdom. And lastly, tell people the good news of hope in Jesus Christ the mediator and hero of God's great story of redemption, a story that he's committed to authoring and governing for his glory and the good of those who trust in him.